It's hard to convey just how fast and how much Europe has changed. The people fleeing to the EU from Ukraine are coming in the largest numbers since the Second World War. More than a million people have fled to safety in just over a week, and more are coming. Everyone who's coming here from Ukraine into Poland, they know that once they are here, they will have help. There were signs up that said, Ukrainians, we are waiting for you here in Poland. Welcome to Poland. We have seen warm welcomes like this before, back in 2015. 1.3 million people sought refuge in the EU that year. But after that, the drawbridge went up on Fortress Europe, and its politicians would be the first to say so. EU countries have hardened their borders, and much of the recent story of migration in Europe is one of people in limbo. So is what we're seeing now a new chapter, or is there fine print? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I'm talking with a migration expert named Frank Duval. He's German. He spent years working in Ukraine. And last week, he fled with his family. I have about 40 years of experience in the field, first as a social worker, consultant, advisor, advocate, and then as an academic researcher. So you were in Ukraine when the war broke out. And now you're speaking to us from Germany via Poland. Tell me about your journey. Yes, indeed. I was in Ukraine uh, with my wife, who is Ukrainian, working at the same university as a professor with our little son, three years old, staying with our uh, in-laws. I was in Ukraine for a business trip gave a lecture at uh, Ukrainian Catholic University, not knowing that my lecture that Wednesday evening was the last lecture at the university for a long time. Because on Thursday morning, 7 o'clock, the sirens went off. Uh, we knew immediately that uh, the war has arrived. So everyone jumped out of bed, packed fast, and checked how to get out of the country. The airspace was closed. Trains were unreliable. So Frank's parents-in-law drove them to the closest border from the city of Lviv. Traffic was bad. Cars were lined up. Eventually, they got out of the car and walked the last few kilometers. It was a very lovely day. Sunny, fairly warm, birds singing. I only mentioned that because we were in all our winter clothes and we were sweating like hell. We were pushing the push chair up and down the hills, lots of potholes. So that's a very cumbersome walk. We have a three years old boy and it would have been too much for him to walk. So we decided to put him in the push chair. And also some of our bags we put in the pushchair. And uh, we went to the back, then to the front, inquiring, only to be told people were waiting there already for eight hours. That must have felt surreal because, as you mentioned, it's a beautiful day. And yet you're in this long queue on the border 
fleeing. What did that feel like? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really notice that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I was very, very focused, thinking about getting to the border as quickly as possible. Because, of course, from my research, I know about the chaotic scenes that are associated with fleeing a country. I knew all of it. My wife suggested we should stay put and wait for two days. I said, no, no, impossible. The longer we wait, the more chaotic, uh, the more we would suffer. Mm -hmm. And with a little boy, I wouldn't want to imagine walking and queuing for two, three, four days. So Frank knew about what to expect at the border. And he also knew what was coming. He himself had projected it with pretty startling accuracy. Back in December, he studied recent conflicts in Eastern Europe, including in Ukraine in 2014. He found that generally half of the affected population was displaced. Today, the eastern half of Ukraine is home to roughly 20 million people. So... Half of this population could be displaced. So we talk about an enormous number of 10 million people. And this is, of course, extremely high. It sounds extreme. It sounds uh, not credible. And that might be one reason why my study was rejected. Rejected, that is, by the media. And about that number, 10 million people... That's now the number that the UN is predicting. My study was rejected by almost all media outlets that I approached. Wow. Why do you think that is? Why were they rejecting it? Europeans didn't want to see the obvious. They just couldn't believe that that would happen. And they tend to judge Putin not understanding that Putin acts and thinks within a completely different framework. And uh, I basically hoped for the best, but wanted to alert the public and policy to be prepared at least for the worst. Nobody wanted to hear about that. So what are the conditions like for Ukrainians entering the EU? And and let's focus on Poland, because that's where you were, and also where most people seem to be going. Initially, there was basically nothing. Mm -hmm. That has now changed completely. There is a huge mobilization of Polish civil society first, but also state agencies there is information, there is free transportation, offers of uh, free accommodation, an enormous uh, level of empathy, solidarity and support. I haven't had that much detailed information from Hungary, Slovakia, Romania or even Moldova, but it might be very similar. The sympathy is uh, enormous. And that was basically the reaction back in 2015, too, when most of those crossing the border were fleeing war in Syria and Iraq. Many Germans are rolling out a cheering red carpet welcome for refugees. Few doubt it is genuine. But feelings changed, and the EU changed. 
People from many other countries also left their homelands in search of a better future in Europe. Right-wing nationalist parties are expected to do well in EU elections. Their support is largely driven by voters weary of mass immigration. Then came from the political right and the social right the backlash, which uh, gained pace, overtook and began dominating the discourse and uh, the response. And increasingly, the whole notion of refugees became extremely toxic, almost got perverted. Refugees were no longer seen and treated as human beings, but rather another category of creatures, subhuman in a way, treated subhuman. And all that we have seen on the Greek islands along the route in detention camps, pushbacks, uh, let people die at sea, is an expression of this dehumanization of people that were labeled refugees and thereby no longer perceived as human beings. At the same time that all of this was happening, there was something that was not on the table. It's called the Temporary Protection Directive, and it was just enacted on March 3rd for the first time ever. I asked Frank to explain. This is indeed uh, a European law that uh, has never been used uh, so far, and it is meant to provide temporary protection in exactly this situation of a major crisis, large-scale displacement, which brings large numbers of people to Europe. It is meant to prevent the overload of the asylum system because asylum claims take an awful lot of time and resources and people are kept in limbo for a long time. So it's meant to deal with exactly this uh, situation. People get a status uh, very quickly. It encompasses an immediate right to work, which asylum seekers don't have. Access to healthcare, education, social services, all of which asylum seekers don't normally have. This directive was created in 2001. And as Frank said, it's a first. And it was a rapid response. The EU interior ministers first met on the matter just days before it came into effect. What comes next, though, is not totally clear. People are safe for the moment. They enjoy significant rights, but legally they are still in limbo. So even in the light of war, when you look at the EU of the last seven years, you might ask, is there a double standard here? To Frank, the shared history between Ukraine and its neighbors cannot be overlooked. Large parts of Ukraine were historically part of Poland. So the two countries, Poland and Ukraine, are very closely connected, historically, culturally, linguistically, religiously, and so on. And that 
explains to some extent the solidarity. Borders and states, what we have now, is a bit artificial, cutting across communities. There are parts of Ukraine where people speak Romanian, where they speak Hungarian. Polish is widely understood. And I think this is important to take into account when we want to put the Ukrainian case into a wider picture. Ukrainians, of course, are not the only people in Ukraine. African and Indian students stuck in Ukraine are accusing officials of discriminating against them and pushing them back from getting to the border. Some are having to wait longer than others to cross to safety. Like we were trying to board on the train, but they were like, they were pushing the Ukrainians first. We talked to a university student from Nigeria. Alexander Samto Ora has been in Kyiv for a year. We talked to him from a shelter in Warsaw for refugees. And he said in Ukraine, he saw a lot of racist treatment. I would say if this was about being a Ukrainian, they would have been checking passports. There were other Africans there that also had uh, Ukrainian passports. Those people have been living in Ukraine for more than 10 years. Some of them are married to Ukrainians. And yes, they were discriminated against. So this is not about shared culture. It's very obvious. It's about skin color. Samto said in Ukraine, at the border, the guards formed two lines, one for Ukrainians and one for foreigners. But they weren't checking passports. They were passing like 100 white people and then they, they allowed two black people or two Asians. So it was terrible that I asked some people, they told me they've been there for, for, for two days. The other one said he's been there for three days because of this segregation and it was crazy. There have also been reports on the Polish side of incidents of border guards turning away foreign residents of Ukraine. Poland has said that it's misinformation. And Samtu says he didn't see that himself on the Polish side. I wouldn't say I understand all about the migrant issues because I I came as a student and my papers were complete. I just got caught up in a war. Or I never had issues at the borders. Nobody denied me back. Everything was smooth, except on the Ukrainian side. If you've watched the EU's borders harden, seeing them open so widely and so quickly, even for a war next door, might be jarring, especially after the last few years. An alleged campaign orchestrated by special police units in Croatia, Greece and Romania to forcibly keep migrants out. A border fence has been built along the southern frontier to protect what Hungarian leaders call ethnic homogeneity. Pushbacks are against international refugee protection agreements. And evidence strongly suggests that the EU's border guard agency Frontex was complicit. But one person we talked to was not shocked. My name is Eric Edman, and I am the political director of the Democracy in Europe movement 2025. DM25 is a pan-European political movement formed in 2016, back in the days of Brexit, the Greek financial crisis, and of course, the refugee crisis. So our movement was a very critical response towards the European Union, exactly because we are deep, deep believers in the idea of a united Europe that stands up to global challenges. 
Eric had a lot to say about what that temporary protection directive means for non-Ukrainians. Normally, the process is that EU states grant asylum in the country where the claim is made. How soon asylum seekers can work is up to individual countries. It's one part of the reason EU border countries bear the brunt of hosting asylum seekers. Now EU states will have the option to grant third-country nationals an EU-wide status under the Protection Directive, or just a national status. What the national statuses entail is still unclear. Whoever receives EU-wide status, as the Ukrainians will, will be free to live and work in any of the member states. It's also worth mentioning the fine print. This only applies to foreign residents of Ukraine who have permanent status and cannot return safely to their country or region of origin. So a Syrian or Afghan university student, for example, could safely return to other countries. The reality is that now we see that all that is really lacking is not the infrastructure, but the political will to do something. In the case of, of Syria, people would talk about the Dublin Agreement and all these different treaties that regulate the way refugees uh, need to be handled within the Union. The solutions were always there. We could have been doing more about this, and we didn't. Some commentators would call that change hypocritical or two-faced. But actually, if you look more closely, the sad reality is that the countries that have been primarily opposed to refugees uh, from the Middle East uh, and Africa especially are the so-called Visegrad group countries. So Poland, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, and, and those countries have said that the reason why they are against this migration and refugee wave is because they wish to preserve the so-called cultural homogeneity and ethnic homogeneity of Europe. So for them, these uh, refugees coming now from Ukraine would not be a threat towards this kind of homogeneity being white, European and, and Christian. So it's they're actually being incredibly consistent in their message. And that message is, and we as Europeans need to face up to that, is racist and Islamophobic. And Europe really needs to take that much more seriously than it's done, including countries in the West and North of Europe, which have sort of hidden behind the, the obstinacy of Eastern European countries. So it is an exception to the rule. Fortress Europe is the rule, and the Temporary Protection Directive is the exception to that rule. And that is really something that I would expect European governments to use as the official narrative going forwards to, to explain why this approach hasn't been the case for other conflicts, past and future. There's been talk about the return of war in Europe, how these refugees are different, how this war isn't where the world has become accustomed to war. You can also find that in Frank's story. The people who make decisions about Europe's borders today, from the guards checking passports, to the experts who brief the leaders, to the politicians who decide, have rarely fled war themselves. So... I asked Frank about it. You have been researching migration in Ukraine 
for more than a decade. You've been doing work around the larger issue for more than 40 years. Among the decision makers in Europe on migration, having to flee a country at war makes you a bit of a rare person in some respects. So what was it like after your years of research, your long career, for you to find yourself caught up on the border trying to flee? I don't think I had enough time yet to reflect on what it means for me. It's kind of weird to become like a subject myself in a certain way. I was only a visitor in uh, Ukraine. My wife is uh, Ukrainian, of uh, course. Um, I was able to leave the country very quickly with my red EU passport, with a good bank account, speaking several languages, knowing where to go. I don't want to compare myself because I'm extremely privileged. So uh, from that perspective, there is nothing really to report. What is extremely disturbing is to see our own family, very close friends and many colleagues being affected by war. Our witness of marriage sends us hourly cries for help on Facebook. They are in eastern Ukraine, Kharkiv, under permanent bombardment. Uh, That's extremely distressing. A colleague of mine got her apartment destroyed by shooting. Other colleagues are silent. We don't know what their situation is, but we have so many friends and very good colleagues uh, in Ukraine. I have been traveling the country up and down, east, west, north, south for 15 years, and it is heartbreaking. And that is the main difference. And this is very different from how I feel when I hear about uh, the very same bombardment in uh, Syria, which drove me mad, Chechnya, which drove me mad, or um, Afghanistan even, which made me very angry. But the emotional element, the emotional attachment uh, makes it very different and much more difficult to bear. And this is not the researcher in me, but I'm not very hopeful that anybody's coming to help our friends in Ukraine. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Nagina Oliai, Amy Walters, Nate Alvarez, Ruby Zeman, Priyanka Tilvey, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Our engagement producer is Aya El Milek. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back 